Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast. We hope you've enjoyed hearing all the terrifying and twisted tales we have brought you so far. This week, we bring you a few more disturbingly deadly topics in an episode we call Murder Party of Two. One has to wonder how, when two people meet, the idea of committing a murder comes up in conversation. It's somewhat of a leap to go from what type of music do you like to who should we kill? The concept of two people committing murder together is one of the more intriguing topics in true crime. The psychology behind it is fascinating, as there seems to be such a broad spectrum of these types of offenders and their motivations. Sometimes, one victim is more dominant than the other, and the submissive partner would never have usually been involved in a murder. Other times, both offenders are equally guilty, and one can only imagine how thrilling it would be for a budding serial killer to realise that their best friend also shared a murderous streak. It's surprising how often these types of criminals were able to connect before the internet existed, but that technology has certainly made it a lot easier and faster for deviants to find like-minded friends. Thankfully, science, DNA and technology now make it significantly more difficult for criminals to get away with their crimes. In fact, in the last few decades, there are very few partners in crime who were able to elevate to serial killer status before being caught. The most common type of murderous partners we hear about are two straight males who team up to rape and murder together. While they are not the most frequent, they are the ones that tend to dominate the headlines. There are countless examples of this type of duo in the archives of true crime, Lake and Ning, The Hillside Stranglers, Bittaker and Norris, to name just a few. Less common, but still very much represented, are the heterosexual couples that kill together for fun. In these partnerships, it seems more common for the man to be the dominant partner that pushes his female counterpart to be his accomplice, through manipulation, coercion, or some other method. Well-known examples include Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, and the Sunset Strip Slayers Carol Bundy and Doug Clark. The common motives for these crimes include emotional connection to the victim, money, revenge, or simply a quick thrill kill. In this episode, we bring you some unique and lesser known cases, and we will attempt to understand just how these couples evolved to become murderous duos. This first case is one of the most unique we have encountered that of Tanya Bogdanovich and Michael McGregor, who were just a couple of young Canadians in lust when they decided to murder a young woman together. There is much about their case that makes them stand out among the headlines. Firstly, Tanya was 10 years older than Michael when they met. She was 28 and he was 18. Secondly, Tanya was thought to be the driving force behind the murder which is terrifying when you take into account that she was a nurse at the time of the murder, and there's no telling how many people she may have killed had she not been caught the first time. Another odd thing is that the murder appeared to be sexually motivated for both Tanya and Michael. In fact, 
they had initially met because of their shared sexual fetish of BDSM. It's important to note that their crime should not be a reflection on that community. We believe two consenting adults should be able to do what they like behind closed doors. But there are outliers in every group. Their story began in 2012 when they met on the website FetLife, a popular site where people who practiced a BDSM lifestyle could meet like-minded individuals. They were both seeking someone with a similarly violent drive and there they made a connection. At the time, Tanya was a sex worker who specialised as a dominatrix, along with her nursing job. She came from a broken home and had already lived a wild life of drinking and drugs. She was also a mother of three children and had a boyfriend. Michael was much younger and nothing in his background would indicate a criminal path not at all like the one his life would take. He came from a happy family and everyone got on well. Even physically, the two made an odd pairing. Tanya was conventionally unattractive, with cold, dead eyes and an unnerving smile, while Michael was an average-looking guy who worked as a pizza delivery man while he figured out what he wanted to do with his life. But they shared a bond over their violent fantasies, and in each other they found a partner in deviance they were seeking. Their personalities played off each other well. Tanya was an extreme narcissist who liked to wear the pants in the relationship, and had horrifying fantasies of sexually assaulting people. Michael was the submissive one, and at one point told her that he could be talked into just about anything. Their overinflated egos are clear in the nicknames they gave themselves. Archer and Lana, named after the spies in the cartoon Archer. These characters are supposedly the best spies in the world and extremely good looking. Despite Tanya already having a boyfriend, she and Michael began a sexual relationship the day they met in person. They were both into kinky, violent sex and thrived on having a partner willing to act out their darkest desires. Their sex life became something of an addiction, and they tended to increasingly push the boundaries in search of newer, greater thrills. Finally, after months of escalation, they were tiring of their situation and sought ways to spice things up. By December 2012, they had planned to kidnap rape and murder someone together. They began internet stalking several local young women and since they lived in a small city of Sarnia, Ontario with a population of 70,000, it wasn't hard to track any of these women down through their social media accounts. For Michael's 19th birthday, Tanya gifted him with a digital picture frame loaded with pictures of some of her personal favourite options pictures of young local women that she'd found on social media. The pair sorted through the pictures, narrowing down their choices as casually as one might shop for shoes online. They selected a teenage girl as their victim on New Year's Eve, but were disappointed when they learnt that she wouldn't be around for them to kidnap. They considered scrapping their plans altogether, 
but happenstance led them to cross paths with a 27-year-old teacher, Noelle Paquette. She was a kind and sweet soul who ended up in their crosshairs on New Year's Eve 2012 due to a series of unfortunate events. After drinking too much and arguing with her boyfriend at a party, Nicole decided to walk home alone. As she was walking, Tanya was driving by and stopped to offer Nicole a ride, which she accepted. Spontaneously, Bogdanovich decided it was the perfect opportunity to make her fantasies come true. And while Noelle was much older than the victims they had initially planned, Tanya knew she had to make the most of this lucky break. Tanya picked up McGregor and the two drove Noelle out into an isolated patch of woods where they sexually assaulted and stabbed her nearly 50 times before leaving her brutalised body. They had known each other only seven months before committing this despicable murder together. Luckily for the rest of Canada, they lacked the superior intellect of the fictional spies they'd named themselves after, and neither was a criminal mastermind. While they'd spent plenty of time daydreaming about committing the perfect murder, they hadn't planned the logistics to successfully get away with the crime at all. Shortly after leaving the wooded area where they had discarded Noel's body, police found them parked on the side of the road. There was an issue with the car, and they'd been unable to make a getaway. Furthermore, they hadn't planned ahead for any kind of after-murder clean-up. Both still had blood on their hands and clothes, and Michael had a deep cut on his hand. Tanya explained that he had accidentally cut himself badly while the two were engaged in kinky sex in the woods nearby, and Michael was taken to hospital to be treated. Tanya later joined him at the hospital, and staff reported that she was acting strangely, endlessly pacing and desperate to be by Michael's side. She seemed disproportionately concerned and anxious about what was a relatively minor injury. Staff initially thought she was Michael's worried mother until they saw them making out in the hospital bed. Noelle's body wasn't discovered until January 2nd, and police immediately suspected the strange pair they had found broken down and covered in blood not far from the crime scene. Michael's hand injury was also comparable to one someone might accidentally receive while stabbing someone. The unfixable car had been towed and was being held under orders from law enforcement. The pair travelled to London, Ontario as Michael needed hand surgery and within just a few days of the discovery of Noelle's body, the two were arrested in London. They would eventually plead guilty due to the overwhelming amount of evidence. In early 2016, at the sentence hearing, the two spoke directly to Noelle's family and expressed remorse for their actions. But it was too little too late, and they each received the maximum penalty allowable by law. Life in prison with no parole for 25 years. Despite the pair's amateur methods, it was still an extremely lucky break that these two were caught. Had their car not broken down, they probably would never have been suspects since they had no connection to their victim whatsoever. When you consider the speed at which their violence escalated 
one can justifiably assume one or both would have gone on to commit more murders. This next case is also quite unique, primarily for the gender and age of the killers, as well as their motivation for the murder. 14-year-old Shirley Wolfe and 15-year-old Cindy Collier met on June 14, 1983. They had spent just one day together, but that day would forever change the course of their lives, along with the lives of many other people. Prior to that fateful hot day in Auburn, California, both girls had experienced difficult childhoods. Cindy's father had left when she was very little, and she claimed she'd experienced a childhood full of both physical and sexual abuse. She was often left to her own devices and ended up getting into trouble quite often. By summer of 1983, she was drinking and smoking pot and had already spent time in juvenile hall on numerous occasions. In fact, she'd only just been released from her most recent stint when she met Shirley. Shirley's father had been relatively present, but he'd sexually abused her for many years. When she finally had the courage to speak out about this treatment, he managed to secure a deal where he pled guilty to misdemeanor, which meant he was behind bars for only a few months. Once he was released, he could not legally live in the same home as Shirley, but rather than him leave the family home, she was forced to move out and was placed in foster care. Over the next few years, she would be moved between various foster homes and group homes. These two troubled young girls met when Cindy stopped by a group home to visit a friend and happened to strike up a conversation with Shirley. The pair decided to hang out and see what kind of trouble they could get into. They agreed it would be fun to get out of town, but to do that, they'd need a car. They concocted a plan to scam their way into someone's home, who they would then murder and steal their car. With the plan sorted, they began knocking on doors in a subdivision where Cindy had once lived with her grandparents. Not the wisest of choices, considering the high risk of being recognised by former neighbours. This neighbourhood was full of retired people, a strategic choice the girls made, since they assumed it would probably be easier to kill an older person. They knocked on a number of doors, asking to use the phone or for a glass of water. Most people said no, as there was something not quite right about these girls, who no doubt looked a bit rough. They made it into one house, but were disappointed when they saw there was both a man and a woman present. They knew they could never take on two people. Interestingly, this couple would later tell police that they immediately regretted letting the girls in because they acted very strangely from the get-go. Finally, the two came to the home of Anna Brackett, age 85. She was expecting her son, Carl, who was on his way to pick her up and take her to bingo. But in the meantime, she invited the girls in, allowing them to use her phone and to have some cold water. She sat and chatted with the girls for about an hour before they finally made their move. Shirley attacked Anna and Cindy tossed her a knife that she had found in the kitchen. 
Shirley stabbed Anna nearly 30 times, and they also beat and attempted to strangle her. It was a horrific scene, and by the time Anna was finally dead, there was blood all over the place. Ready to bolt, they grabbed Anna's car keys and headed out to the car, only to discover to their dismay that none of the keys matched the car. Accepting defeat, they headed to Cindy's house where she lived with her mother for a sleepover. Anna's son, Carl, had been on his way to her house as she was being murdered. He actually drove past the girls as they were walking down the road and had taken particular notice because they seemed so young and he was worried they were trying to hitchhike. When he arrived at his mother's house, he came upon her savaged body. A truly shocking scene, especially in such a usual safe neighbourhood. As police arrived and began processing the scene, news began to trickle throughout the neighbourhood of the ghastly crime. The police received several calls from neighbourhood residents who told them about the creepy girls going door to door. Some of the residents were able to identify Cindy by name as they recognised her from when she used to live there. Police were dubious that two young girls could cause that level of bloodshed, but nonetheless they decided to visit Cindy's house and ask her a few questions. It did not take long before both girls admitted everything. Neither seemed to feel nor show any remorse, and in fact they said that afterwards they'd wanted to kill again because it was fun. Later, Shirley's diary entry from that day would be a key piece of evidence. The entry read, Today, Cindy and I ran away and killed an old lady. It was fun. Even the most hardened detectives were shocked that these two young girls could be responsible for such a viciously brutal attack, especially on a complete stranger. Each girl would end up with a bench trial. And despite the defence attorney's best efforts, the judge found them both guilty of first-degree murder after very little deliberation. They were tried as minors, and the judge sentenced them to the maximum sentence allowable by California law, which was eight years. Both repeatedly got into trouble behind bars, but were ultimately released in the early 90s. It's not a stretch to say that if these two had committed this crime in more recent years, they may have spent a sizable chunk of their lives behind bars. Theirs was an instant connection based on a shared internal rage manifested into moral apathy. It's quite likely that neither would have committed this crime on their own. After Cindy was released from prison, she went on to marry and start a family leading a reasonably normal life. Shirley had some run-ins with the law following her release, though those incidents were non-violent and mostly not very serious. In the 25 or so years since they regained their freedom, they've lived quiet lives out of the public eye. As far as anyone knows, the pair never saw each other again after that one day in June of 1983. 
This next case is a fairly recent incident that reminds us that truth can truly be stranger than fiction. If this case were simply the plot of a movie, it would be scoffed at for its complete absurdity. Folie adieu is a French term that translates to the madness of two, and is a term used to describe a very rare psychological condition in which two people share a psychosis. It is also referred to as shared psychotic disorder. This generally occurs between two people who are extremely close and spend a lot of time together, especially blood relatives or romantic partners, but can occur in larger groups such as family units. The disorder tends to affect people who are either physically or emotionally isolated from others and have an us versus them mentality that is allowed to fester and evolve into delusions, typically of the paranoid variety. The disorder can take a few different forms, such as folly and posy, in which one person imposes their paranoid delusions on another, or folly simultanee, where all parties involved have their own delusions which mutually affect and are affected by the delusions of the other parties. This particular instance of folie adieu appears to be of the imposy variety, and in addition, it seems to be a bit of an outlier with regard to the characteristics just described. Sophie Leonette was a petite and pretty 21-year-old French resident from a small town called Troyes in northern France. The shy young woman decided to take a job as a nanny in London in the hopes of learning English and experiencing a new place. She travelled there in January 2016 and began work with a very wealthy family, a French-Algerian couple who'd relocated to London. 34-year-old Sabrina Codier was a wannabe fashion designer and socialite. Her 40-year-old partner Ozen Medoni had wooed her when she was just 18 and they'd had an on and off relationship ever since. He was said to be a pushover and would let Sabrina walk all over him. She'd regularly go off and have relationships with other men knowing full well that he'd always welcome her back with open arms. And despite the fact that the two were legally married she'd often just refer to him as a friend when they were in public. She was the type of woman always on the lookout for a better option. Sophie had moved in to take care of Sabrina's two children, one of which was from her previous relationship with Mark Walton, a founding member of the Irish boy band Boyzone, who'd gone on to have a very successful career as a music producer. She dated him for about two years before getting back together with Madoni. Once relocated to London, the couple moved into a nice house worth around £1 million. Once Sophie arrived as their nanny, it wasn't long before she became well known in the neighbourhood. She had an ethereal beauty and a genuine smile for those she came into contact with. She also seemed to truly care for the children she looked after and was often seen out and about with them. Things seemed to be going well for her in London, but at some point they took a dark turn, and tensions in the house started to escalate towards boiling point. 
Things came to a head in September 2017 when firefighters were called to the couple's home in Southfields. Neighbours had called the police department after seeing thick smoke coming from the couple's yard, one that smelt particularly strong and pungent. When firefighters arrived, they saw the couple having a bonfire on their property, and when they got closer, they saw what appeared to be a body in the fire. Madoni tried to insist it was the body of an animal, but it was obvious to anyone looking that it was, in fact, a human carcass. Their story quickly unravelled, and it wasn't long before a terrible revelation was made. The body in the fire was that of their young nanny, Sophie. The couple went on trial for her murder, and by the time it ended in May 2018 with a guilty verdict, the once gorgeous and poised Sabrina was a dishevelled shadow of her former self. But what could have possibly happened in that house prior to this tragic ending? The details revealed during the trial were beyond shocking, even to the most devoted true crime fan. As it happens, Sabrina had a long history of emotional instability. Her ex, Mark Walton, told the court that he had loved her deeply, but their relationship was incredibly tumultuous because of her mood swings. She was said to have borderline personality disorder and depression, but it's unknown if she'd received any treatment for these issues. Once she and Mark started dating, she began to have bizarre delusions and would regularly call the police making wild claims like that he'd assaulted their cat, even though they'd never owned a pet together. Mark couldn't handle it and eventually moved to LA for a job, though he still felt connected to Sabrina and regularly sent her large sums of money to maintain her lavish lifestyle. She also collected government benefits and never really held down an actual job. Even though her relationship with Mark had ended in 2012 and she'd gone back to Madoni, her obsession with Mark festered. She had delusions of persecution and thought he was trying to spy on her, kill her and a variety of other strange claims. Over time, she projected those delusions onto Madoni, her malleable and pliable mate. Since Mark was thousands of miles away in another country, and she was unable to have access to him, Sabrina shifted her focus to her young nanny Sophie. Over the time that Sophie lived with them, Sabrina grew to believe that the young nanny was in a relationship with Walton, and that she'd come to work for her in order to spy on the couple and drug them. She grew emotionally and physically abusive towards Sophie, and Madoni went along with it. She barely paid Sophie any money so that she'd be unable to leave the country, and she restricted her food and monitored her activities. Sophie, already a small and slender girl, became gaunt and weak from months of having her food restricted. Sabrina then began long interrogation sessions, in which she would question Sophie for hours, trying to get her to admit to her relationship with Walton and the fact that she was a spy. Sophie was terrified, but barely spoke English and didn't know what to do. Towards the end, she really left the house, 
but when she did, local shopkeepers noticed that she looked troubled. But she was so petrified by the situation she was barely able to speak. Law enforcement found hours of interrogation footage the couple had recorded, showing them berating Sophie with questions before resorting to physical torture, such as holding her head under water, all in an attempt to force a confession about her relationship with Walton. In the end, Sophie was under so much duress that she eventually confessed that she was in a relationship with Walton and was there as a spy. It didn't help her cause, however, as sometime prior to the discovery of her body in the fire, on September the 20th, 2017, she was murdered by the couple. The cause of her death is not certain, though it is said to have occurred in the bathroom. When her body was examined, there were signs that she had been repeatedly beat and hit in various parts of her body. This is truly one of the more terrifying crimes one can imagine. A young woman goes off on an adventure having secured a great job with a well-to-do couple, only to end up in the lion's den. Her family and friends received a tiny modicum of justice with the guilty verdict, but they must live the rest of their lives knowing how scared Sophie must have been in her final days. Her murderers returned to court towards the end of June of this year for sentencing. And that concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe and tell a friend. Until next time, keep that nightlight on because you never know what's waiting for you in the dark.